into the trucker's fraternity. Thank you, sir, man. Have another. Dad, they're trying to kill us. Oh, why do all my trips end like this? Eat water, good buddy. Ah! Whoa, look at him roll. Oh, my good knife. My wife's going to kill me. I think we lost him, Bert. Dad, stop. Well, well, well. Looks like we got ourselves a showdown, boy. All right. What are you doing? I'm keeping a promise to an American roadmaster. Huh? Red, the trucker. Big fat guy couldn't handle his steak. Oh, yeah. We'll get past that barrier somehow. Old Blinky here will find a way. I'm afraid I can't let you do this, Red. The risk is unacceptable. I'm not Red, I'm Homer. Gotta go. Uh -oh. ah! Dad, do something. Something better. Now that man is a genuine steel-belted gear jam and rig jockey. Mm, that's a fact. Boy, how do you say that again? Yeah. You know, boys, I've been thinking. Maybe it's time we ditched the high-tech gizmos and went back to driving like our daddies did. Drunk? No, no, no. Using our hands and our wits. Yeah, sure, it's hard work and it's lonely as hell, but it has meaning and dignity. Huh? What do you say? Nah, let's just find some other scam. Hey, how about bootlegging Beanie Babies? Sounds yeah, good to me. I like that. Yep, you're gonna make it, Dad. Somewhere up there, I bet Red is saying thanks. Ten four, dead buddy. This is Red Barclay's shipment on time as always. All right, let's see. Artichokes and migrant workers looking good. So where is old Red anyway? 
Well, the last time I saw him, he was in a big plastic bag. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Red, all right. Well, son, I guess it's time to go home. Any thoughts on how we're going to get there? No, but I'm sure the good Lord will provide. Are you crazy? I'm not driving a train load of napalm to Springfield. Thank you. Napalm? Migrant workers? Dang. Is there anything that the Simpsons haven't predicted? I, I mean, it just looks super weird, right? <laughs> well, welcome everyone. It's Friday. Um, I'm, my diction may not be perfect as I had some procedure yesterday. My face still hurts. Um, so, and it hasn't helped because I did a lot of talking today that I didn't do yesterday. Uh, today we're going to talk about J6 and the Fourth Amendment. I think it's important that everyone uh, uh, visit what the Fourth Amendment is. And I think using examples is the best. Um, <laughs> boy, boy, boy. Boy, boy, boy. And the thing is, all of this was foreseen, predicted, uh, actually demonstrated uh, in D.C., and, yeah, you guessed it. It happened anyway. So let's get going with this. All dog years, I don't remember if it was two or three days ago, that we talked about whether or not DOJ was scrutinizing this part of the insurrection. It is now clear that the 1-6 committee is. They have subpoenaed... Um, alternate electors or fake electors from all seven states. And I wonder if you can just give some voice to the significance of that. Right. We've known that the January 6th committee has been investigating this, but this is unquestionably another significant step in their investigation. Uh, we don't know to what extent they were engaging with their lawyers or them directly uh, prior to issuing a subpoena. But what the January 6th committee, I think, has done incredibly effectively is laid out for us what their understanding of the scheme is. And Adam Kinziger mentioned, mentioned it, as you said, in their open, as well as the John Eastman memo. But what we are now understanding is that this was all part of what the New Mexico attorney general said correctly, a broader conspiracy to lay the foundation for Mike Pence to deny that uh, the proper counting of the votes. So what they did is they created a, a second slate of electors, a false slate of electors. And in five states, they forged a certification that is required by every state to by the governor or the ultimate official in every state must certify the electors and send them to Congress. And in five of those states, these bogus slate of electors were certified, then sent to Congress. And then they were going to be used for, in theory, Mike Pence to say, well, we have competing slates of electors. There are allegations of fraud. What are we going to do? We got to send it back to the states or we got to delay it. So essentially what they were doing is they were creating their own straw man that they could then try to use to knock down the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. Mike Pence realized there was no legality to this and that these bogus slate of electors were not the legitimate alternate slate. There was no legitimate alternate slate of electors, as there have been in history, but not in this particular case. And so he rejected it. 
But this was a larger conspiracy that we know from lots of different pockets now because of the great work of the committee, as well as some in, uh, in excellent journalistic uh, work, that uh, this was part of a broader conspiracy orchestrated by Rudy Giuliani that involved individuals with the Trump campaign and with the Republican state parties in these battleground states. And it's just getting worse and worse the more we learn about it. Dan, let me just press you. I mean, orchestrated by Rudy Giuliani or orchestrated by Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump is the through line. Donald Trump was in the Oval with John Eastman on the 5th telling Pence what to do. Donald Trump was running Rudy Giuliani telling the electors what to do. Donald Trump went on rally stages in Georgia and said, if Mike Pence does the right thing, the right thing meant taking the, and and I don't know if phony or fraudulent is the right thing. There was no fraud. So there was no reason for any state to have alternate electors. And yet there were seven. The only reason there were seven is because John Eastman in the Oval with Donald Trump said, here are the seven you need. That's how behind you are. The whole thing is, seems top down driven. There's no way that just seven random states that Trump lost bigly, if you will, came up with with, you know, let's 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 fake it. Donald Trump's fraudulent scheme to overturn it. And that's what I guess we're, we're getting down into more of the details of when I say Rudy or Giuliani was orchestrating it. I don't know who came up with the idea, but we know that Giuliani was from, you know, Boris Epstein last week and from some of these other uh, individuals with the White House or who were called. We have that recording from Michigan. Um, and and we, we now know from some reporting that Giuliani was at the hub of it. Whose idea it was, we still don't know uh, whether it was Eastman's idea. But you're right. There's no question that regardless of whether it was his idea or not, and we can be sure it was not, Donald Trump adopted this and ran with it and pressed it publicly, um, privately, on recordings in in every way, shape or form. So to the extent that there is a conspiracy to overturn the election through the use of these fake electors and ultimately trying to pressure Mike Pence to uh, refuse to to uh, count the votes on January 6th, the votes were already certified. He just has to count them. Um, And to the extent that there was such an illegal conspiracy to defraud the United States, The evidence indicates thus far that Donald Trump was involved in that conspiracy. And let me ask you one more question about criminal referrals. The committee has um, been reported to have been um, gathering evidence to potentially make criminal referrals. Did any of these fake electors potentially expose themselves to criminal liability for their actions? Absolutely. Uh, They were a part of this. They and particularly anyone who uh, were involved with or knew that um, the the signature the the signed document that they signed was going to be uh, fraudulently certified and sent to Congress. Uh, they knew that was oh, a forgery. Wait, wait, they we're knew smash that was bogus this. because they knew that um, the the governor or whomever it was in the state who's charged with certifying it did not certify that slate of electors. And so there's absolute criminal liability. And what I think you will see is all of these electors running as fast as they can to meet with the Department of Justice to cooperate, to get themselves out of trouble um, and go up the chain about people who were directing them. And that's how, you know, as we know by now, that's how investigations work. All right. All right. All right. Now, apparently there were false electors uh what else 
Uh, President Trump did all of it. But now we're going to discuss what they did know. We're going to talk about uh, September of 2020. Now, I want you guys to pay attention to this document. I'm going to try to enlarge it for you so you can see it better. Let me see if I can make the document bigger. Hold on. Let's see. Can I stretch it out more so it can fill the screen? Okay. So let's let's talk about... Um, September of 2020. In September of 2020, federal employees across the United States had a document that was produced by the AFL-CIO. It is one of the leading unions that also have uh, the Postal Service, teachers, and a bunch of others. I want to ask you a question. How did they know specifically these states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, and Arizona. How did they know that these states were important? And I want to read to you what it says. Strategic consideration, state legislatures. Article 2 of the Constitution provides that each state's elector shall be appointed in such a manner as the legislator, therefore, may direct. Since the 19th century, that manner has been direct elections. If the results are not certified by December 8th, then the state legislature decides on a slate of electors. Although it has never even been attempted in American history, Trump supporters have argued that Republican state legislators could appoint Trump electors by declaring that the certified results were poisoned by widespread fraud and used 3 U.S.C. 2 to appoint a different slate of electors. Hold on a second. So you're telling me that he had, if, if there were any other state, slate of electors put, there was a code where you could do it. The question that I'm asking is, why were they having these discussions about these specific states? Okay? These specific states. Can nobody hear me? Can people hear me? Sound okay? Okay. Some people, you just have to refresh. So the question is, why is it that they knew about this in September and had discussions? And they also chose the appropriate states. See, that's a question nobody asks. Nobody asks, hey, that sounds kind of fishy. Like, why are you going about those states? Like, what's what's the thing about those states that's so interesting? How did you know that he was going to talk about those specific states? Here is a better view for you. Strategic considerations. Number one, Trump's vote relative to Biden's will never be better than it will be at 1059 when polls close on the West Coast. Hmm. Results after that will favor Biden as the majority of ballots remaining to be counted will be mail and provisional. This will fuel Trump's claims of fraud, which will enrage his followers. Wait, again, I want to make clear that this document, this, let me just put it at the on, on the screen so people get it, right? This was circulated in September 2020 before the elections. So again, 
Trump's vote relative to Biden's will never be better than it was then. And then it's going to be Biden's because all of the mail-in ballots. So (laughs) recent court rulings that allow ballots received after November 3rd. You mean the illegal court rulings with the unconstitutional changes in election laws, if they are postmarked ahead of the election, will be another target of fraud claims. Unless the election is extraordinary close in the tipping point state, we should know the voters' choice by Saturday, even though not all the ballots will have been counted. Hold on a second. How? First of all, when has an election taken over a week to be done? Never. But for some reason, they all knew, they all knew, all the left knew, that it's going to take a week to count ballots. See, all of this I had, you know, put online, we had provided to authorities, we had given to everyone, uh, you know, this from 2020, way before the elections, right? So the question is, Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan are most likely to be hot spots. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin have Democratic governors, aggressively anti-Democratic legislatures, and little or no experience with this much mailing voting. Florida will likely be counted first. I mean, it's almost as if they wrote the playbook. They knew exactly what they were doing. And the question is, all right, so they knew all this. Uh, You know, how is this happening? Like, what? Not only that, this is why I kept telling, you know, um, I was, I, I remember specifically, I was standing across from all of them and I looked, Seth and Joe, Seth Keschel and Joe, you guys, look at this. This is exactly what you're doing. Look at this. You are doing exactly what they said. They said on November 3rd to 4th, Trump will claim victory based on early leads and call for no votes to be counted after election day, either claim widespread fraud or focus on urban democratic strongholds. If he's close enough in their States, especially Milwaukee, Detroit, and Philadelphia encourage his supporters to watch election administrators counting the ballots, everything, you know, when you want to expose the fraud, what you do is you embrace it and let it run. Uh, at first, I thought to myself, uh, I have this. We already know how many more chess moves are left. Um, why are, why is this happening? How is this happening? And who lets this happen? Because we had the union's documentation from September of 2020 indicating that they have mapped out everything. They're the ones that even said, hey, people are going to storm the Capitol. We should let them. So again, uh, this, this union also houses the post office union. So the question is, how did they know? They said what the Trump campaign and his supporters may do. Intimidation at counting locations and elsewhere 
lawsuit exploiting legal rules to create frivolous delays to the counting process. This will intensify as ballots counted after election day will favor Biden, mail and provisional. Okay, so how did they know that the mail and provisional ballots were all going to favor Biden? Like, were they psychic? Uh, You know, he couldn't even get eight people to go to his rally. But for some reason, they knew he was going to win. Okay, Uh, this is this is really bizarre. If you think about it, you'd be like, I I don't know. This doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right. What is going on? They knew about the state legislators. They knew about everything. And they also had a backup plan. They had contingencies. So here is what they were discussing. That in contingencies, if Congress approves of Biden's election, most believe that both the Supreme Court and the military would resist any efforts to overrule that judgment. If Congress deadlocks, the Constitution would make the House Speaker president at one on January 20th, 2021, when Trump term expires per the Constitution. So we had a choice. At this point, we either had Congress at a deadlock and make Nancy Pelosi president, right? Or (laughs) we do what we're doing right now. What would you pick? I mean, would you like Pelosi to be president? Hmm? I highly doubt that. I'd rather go with the guy that can't tie his shoe for a bit and help that, you know, expose more clowns than anything else. So, you know, in this, you know, uh, whole document, it was indicating to everyone that they had planned this. Yet, for some reason, no one took it seriously. Because here's what happens. When you're ready to take down monsters, like the most deepest deep state you can ever think of, right? Because while people think it's only, oh, it's FBI. Oh, it's the corrupt politicians. Oh, it is everywhere. See, I, I had in November, I had made mention to someone at the White House that I was concerned about an individual that was an attorney that worked um, at first. She worked at um, Jared Kushner's office and then moved on to Jason Miller's. That person, for some reason, was in the middle of everything. I believe that that person sabotaged a Supreme Court filing that was going to happen. And uh, this is why Pence and Pelosi went back in the evening. Not only that, that same woman, right, happened to be working right by Sydney and egged her on. And then that woman moved along from Sydney after she had done damage and uh, then started to work with General Flynn and Patrick Byrne. Obviously, always, always pointing out the problem. Now, the J6 committee is questioning an executive order that you've all have seen. And no, it's not Jenna Ellis, okay? And, you know, for some reason, people are trying to pin it on Rudy Giuliani. They're trying to say that the mayor, right, wrote that. I'm really hoping the lamestream media is hopping on soon because... It's going to get quite sexy. But he didn't. In fact, 
if he could have, he would have wrapped it up in a ball and threw them through it right back. So then why are they insisting that um, Mayor Giuliani, the president's attorney, actually put it together when he was the one that said no? He was the one that said this is illegal. He's the one that said that was never supposed to see the daylight, but for some reason it's been leaked to the media like some draft EO. And everyone has amnesia on who wrote it. So what is it and who wrote it? I mean, I could tell you who wrote it. It's e Pauline. Even used Gmail to freaking put it together. So the question is, this person has been bouncing back and forth and everywhere they have gone, they have caused division, taking people down, giving them bad information. And, and no offense, not a very good lawyer, too. Looks good. Not a very good lawyer. And married to a rabid lefty that's tapped by the agency and works for the USGAM. Like, why would you do that? So no one's uh, mentioning her. I am. Right, I am. Um, because <laughs> I've been watching everything and making sure that I can get that out. So, you know, the question every time they put it forward is, you know, Hey, there was an executive order, you know, Trump had executive order. Hold on. Let me find that report. Let's see. Where is it? Let's find the report. Let's see. Let's find a good one. So they said president Trump drafted the report. That's a lie too. Here's a short report. I want you guys to see it. I already know who drafted it. And now they're saying Rudy Giuliani did. Why? Because they want proof. And it's like, you're making the allegation, you prove it. They could ask Tory, and I could say that person did. Prove me wrong. This morning, the January 6th committee combing through former President Trump's papers. More than 700 pages that Mr. Trump tried to block them from getting. The National Archives handing them over less than two days after the Supreme Court gave the green light. I would say that this Supreme Court decision is probably the single biggest day uh, of the investigation so far. The committee sought Mr. Trump's calendars. Emails with state election officials, handwritten notes from his aides, and a draft of an executive order on election integrity. Politico obtaining that document, which would have directed the military to seize voting machines, citing baseless conspiracies about election fraud. Mr. Trump never signed the order. This as multiple investigations swirling around Mr. Trump appeared to close in this week on his inner circle. New York's attorney general laying out reams of evidence she's gathered on Mr. Trump and his children as she investigates the family's business practices. Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, subpoenaed by Congress. And Trump's daughter, Ivanka, asked to testify about what she heard and saw on January 6th. It's unclear whether she'll cooperate. And now a Georgia prosecutor requesting a special grand jury to help investigate whether Trump committed crimes in that state's election. At issue, the former president's post-election phone call pressuring Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. This morning, Mr. Trump defending himself, insisting, I didn't say anything wrong in the call. But Raffensperger, a Republican, saying he'd be willing to testify before a grand jury. We already have cooperated. Any information that they've requested, we've sent it to them. They have cooperated and they have provided. You know, I'm starting to see that it's supposed to be like this because <laughs> everyone's getting weeded out now. 
Every single one of them is being weeded out. Now, I want you to see what they say about the January 6th committee subpoenas, which under 3 USC 2 would have been legal, but what's their spin? Let's take a look and see. On the January 6th investigation, so the House Select Committee has now issued subpoenas for people tied to that fake electors plot. Let's go to CNN's Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Uh, Ryan, talk to us about the subpoenas. Yeah, that's right, Victor and Allison, uh, the January 6th Select Committee issuing 14 subpoenas uh, to the individuals that were behind this push to send an alternate slate of electors to the United States Congress in an attempt to subvert the will of the American people and the certification of the election that would and ultimately did uh, name Joe Biden the next president of the United States. Now, these 14 individuals are the folks that were listed on these electors as either the chairperson or secretary from these seven swing states where this push was made. So we're talking about states like Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, these are not household names. These are not names that people uh, that are even familiar with politics probably know on a day-to-day basis. But there are still some people that are very significant actors, people that play very prominent roles in the state parties uh, in, in these various states. For instance, uh, David Schaefer, he is the chairperson of the Georgia Republican Party. He was part of a lawsuit that was filed uh, shortly before the certification of the election in an attempt to prevent Georgia's electors from being awarded to Georgia. Joe Biden. Uh, Also, Michael McDonald, he's the current chairperson of the Nevada Republican Party. And then you have Andrew Hitt, who was a former Republican Party chairman uh, in Wisconsin and was also someone that served uh, for the former governor there, Scott Walker. So uh, what this shows is that the committee is taking this push very seriously. There'd been some talk uh, that this was just a symbolic effort from some of these Republicans, that there was never any real attempt to them to subvert the will of the people. But what the committee revealed in their information and in the letters that they sent to these subpoena targets is that these electors, this slate of electors, was sent to the United States Congress and it was also specifically sent to the then Vice President Mike Pence uh, to give Pence the opportunity to set aside the duly impaneled electors and use these ones instead. And so the question has to be asked now, Victor and Allison, are we now talking about this being an actual criminal act? We already know that the Department of Justice is looking into it from that perspective, uh, that this was actually something that was done with criminal intent, uh, that this wasn't just a symbolic effort uh, and that there was a real problem here. So this is a significant development. And in large part, you know, CNN has done a lot of reporting on this, uh, this push for these fake electors. And we should also point out there are a number of individuals that have already been subpoenaed that were directly tied to this, including the former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, who was serving as uh, the president's personal attorney at that time. Uh, We have reported that Giuliani was essentially uh, the ringleader of all of this. He was the one coordinating this effort between all these different Republican officials in these seven states, getting them all together for what appears to be more and more like a tangible plan to subvert the will of the American people through this claim that the election uh, was conducted fraudulently, which of course we have shown time and time again is just based in complete falsehoods. Victor and Allison. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Stay with us. I want to bring in now senior legal analyst, Laura Coach. She's a former federal prosecutor. So let me just pause that right one second. So now Rudy Giuliani is considered, our mayor, America's mayor, is now considered the ringleader, okay? 
The guy <laughs> knows the law better than anyone. The guy crushed the executive order that was sent as a draft. Same person giving all the bullshit information to uh, um, Sydney. Same person that probably was the reason that the lawsuit wasn't filed. And that's why Nancy Pelosi and Pence together having discussed things. They discussed things. Oh, oh, yeah, there's a lot. Now, this January 6th committee, I want to put it this way. While everyone's pissed, I want to be devil's advocate. If this January 6th committee was really serious about finding out what happened on January 6th, of course, they would subpoena the people that they have subpoenaed, but they would definitely subpoena Patrick Byrne, who even put out an ad, invite me. I mean, he apparently paid for all these people, right? He was in the middle of it. He was coordinating, uh, you know, like paying for the teams to do research. The only people that weren't paid was Team America. Um, that consisted of uh, myself, Millie, Scott, Bennett, and Gavin. Uh, Bergie was invited by myself, um, hoping that he could give information on uh, IP information, but he didn't. He was more pushing his key tam. But, and um, um, Nate. So we were providing actual information, uh, briefed people, provided people, gave them information. And so I'm thinking, I know my name is all over that Jan 6 committee from the Women for America First. Ali Akbar was so pissed that he was just, you know, uh, upset that there's fat people in Ohio <laughs> that caused him some trouble in his eight-hour grilling, right? But the the thing is, if they were really, really looking for answers, they would call the people that had a lot of information. And that's not something that it looks like they want to do. It doesn't seem like they actually want to get to the bottom of it. It seems like um, a fishing expedition. It seems like um, a way to create the illusion that uh, they're doing something when they're not. It seems that they're really trying hard to just frame President Trump. But the question is, is it what it seems? Could be. Could be. Because payback's a bitch. I heard Stacey Abrams was walking on a bridge just as Biden was going to talk about his fabulous infrastructure. See, this panel now, I want you to listen to what they say. You saw the Democrat handout that was being circulated. They know that having an alternate slate of electors is considered legal. So then why are they saying it's illegal? See, these, this is doublespeak. This is Russia hoax number two. This is Russia, Russia, Russia. It's just Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump derangement syndrome isn't just about President Trump. It's what he represents. He represents a bull in a China cabinet coming in and throwing wrenches into everything. This is the most insane scenario. This is a repeat witch hunt. Now, I did tell you guys that they're going after him, and that's the whole point. And it seems that no matter how many times... The truth is brought to them. They kind of just dismiss it and put it to the side. In the meantime, they have people in positions where they're 
torturing them in a more cerebral way in order to say what they want them to say. And then it goes to, well, how are they finding out these angles and why are they going this way? It's obvious what they're doing. Well, that's because corporations, unlike to unbeknownst to many, um, have all your information. Every email you send, every text you send, every um, um, call you make, every place you go is recorded in third-party apps. And uh, using examples, and I'm okay using examples, today we're, I'm going to walk you through how that works and how um, your data is so compromised that if they want to create a narrative, they, they will create it. It is verifiable from, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, from uh, John Here to Help's testimony, uh, to other testimony that has brought before Congress, how they uh, manipulate past records, uh, insert information, delete information, and obfuscate things, right? And one would say we're in the United States of America and the fourth amendment means something. It really doesn't. Now I'll, I'll show you how this works. Now, um, president Trump at the Supreme court lost to be able to hold on to his administration's papers for that specific thing, which means that that document was leaked. Now I can tell you where this was leaked but everyone's going to hate Akbar even more. And these are the things you need to understand. When you have infiltrators, they are used in the right way. Some of them are unknown infiltrators. Some of them are known. The best thing to do is once you identify them, you keep either a close eye or you keep them as close as possible. You keep your enemies as close to you as a pacemaker on a heart attack. Because then you can understand what they're about to do. And you can understand motive, action, future actions. You can understand all of that. So why is it that the January 6th committee is getting all this documentation? What are they trying to figure out? They're trying to figure out how this happened, right? I didn't see any of them put in a committee for when courthouses, federal courthouses in Portland were burned down. I didn't see any committee or special prosecutors be put together for a burning uh, church at all, but they're doing it now. So the question people should be asking themselves is, why now? What's going on? Listen to them carefully. Also author of Just Pursuit, a black prosecutor's fight for fairness. Laura, first, uh, your reaction to the breaking news now that these 14 uh, uh, party leaders across these seven states have been subpoenaed uh, as part of this uh, this uh, probe specifically into these fake slates of electors. First of all, it's shameful behavior if what's alleged is actually what happened. And we're seeing really the anatomy of the big lie. We've been told time and time again to sort of forget it, put it into the past. This is a way of moving forward. And why keep focusing on the issue of what happened on January 6th? Because it was not a spontaneous occurrence, as you say, Victor. It's the idea of the culmination, it seems, time and time again, the more information we learn, that there were strategic initiatives that were actually sought after and implemented and even attempted to even influence the vice president, who really remained the last, essentially, ideological line of defense and not taking the advice and going down this route. 
but at different levels, different state coordination, leaders in the Republican National Committee, as I think Ryan reported as, for it as well in different states, and the idea of each of those people potentially having the influence or acting at the direction of either members of Congress or somebody perhaps higher up. This is all really part of what the investigatory committee needs to be looking at for the exercise of its legislative and oversight function and the DOJ for the criminal component as to interfering potentially with an election or providing false documents akin to fraud to government officials. Ryan, um, this is beyond a harebrained scheme. I mean, they did this. They sent it yeah. to the National Archives. Ryan, do you have any reporting or sense of how was this supposed to work? Did they think they were going to trick the vice president? Did they think they were going to trick Congress that didn't know what this, the real names of the slate of electors were? No, I, we don't have all the details yet, Allison, but when you start to piece together the bits of evidence and information that we're starting to gather as a result of this, what it appears is that there was at least some in the Trump orbit that believed that if Vice President Mike Pence had this slate of electors at his disposal, that he somehow had the authority under the Constitution to get rid of the actual electors from the seven states uh, that basically uh, won the election for Joe Biden and replace them with these electors. Uh, and that if he single-handedly could somehow stop the certification process and replace them with these electors, that, that somehow that would pass and then the, then Donald Trump would remain in office. Uh, you know, that is one of the potential working theories as to what they thought was going to happen. Uh, it, it doesn't seem as though they thought that this was, uh, you know, kind of a, an effort to, to dupe anyone. What their hope was is that everybody was going to kind of be in on this con and that there were going to be enough Republicans, keep in mind that Republicans still had control of both the House and the Senate at this point, that there would be kind of a, a you know, a rolling momentum behind this to actually try and, and use these as the actual electors that would ultimately keep Donald Trump in office. Now, uh, obviously, and I think as Laura aptly points out, you know, Mike Pence served as kind of the stone wall, the, the defense uh, to prevent all of this from happening. And there were a number of kind of crazy legal theories at that time that were, you know, giving Mike Pence all this power uh, to, to try and stop the certification process when most legal scholars believed that his role was completely ceremonial. That was something that the, the vice president himself ultimately came to as well. But I, I think it's so important to point out the fact that they sent it directly to Mike Pence shows that they really hoped something would happen with this, that this wasn't just, you know, hey, look, we've got these uh, alternate slate of electors. You should pick these. They actually thought someone should use them and put them into practice and, you know, their long-term goal of keeping Donald Trump in office. And I think that's why you're seeing thing, uh, individuals like the Department of Justice taking this serious enough to launch an investigation. There's been a lot of, you know, accusations about things that have happened as it relates to January 6th mm -hmm. that the Justice Department has stepped away from and said that they, they aren't going to look into. The fact that they're willing to do this shows that this is just much more than a political problem, that there's actually more to it. Laura, let's lead on that, um, that uh, DOJ investigation. How can this not be a crime? Mm -hmm. I mean, if they created these documents and from what we've seen, they are created to look like the actual document for the the, the actual electors submitted them, as Ryan says, we've learned from these uh, new documents, submit, submitted them to Congress and to Vice President Pence to give him that option to do the, quote, right thing that those rioters outside of the Capitol were calling for the vice president to do. How is that anything other than criminal? 
Well, you know, you'll be continuously surprised about the chasm that sometimes exists between what ought to be illegal and what is actually done. And I would tell you that, as we know from Lisa Monaco, just in recent reporting, she has said there is an ongoing investigation that she won't comment on, of course, alerting you that there was, in fact, an investigation. But in terms of the bevy of choices, there are laws about interfering with an election. There are laws against providing fraudulent documents to government. Whether it meets all of those standards will be interesting to see. The reason I hedge there a little bit is because some of these electors that were presented, I think in Pennsylvania, for example, had some sort of a caveat-based language or a contingency yeah. of, shall, should this actually arise, then this would happen. And so that language apparently <clears throat> an attempt to couch one. But let's think about the bigger issue here, which is so important. You asked the question about being duped, I think, Allison, as well. Part of this was about the planting of seeds. And that's part of what is so infuriating for those who believe in democracy. The integrity of our elections was questioned to such an extent that January 6th actually occurred. And so the idea of not actually being able to prove it, but enough to say, hey, and call into question, what about these slate of electors? I think may have been, in some respects, part of the goal to sort of stir that pot plant these seed-like notions that somehow the ones that were legitimate and lawful should not be trusted, much like the big lie has done to say that even when there is not fraud, that people would question that these particular ballots should not be counted. And really, that's how you see how nefarious it is. So even from the investigation out of Fulton County, all the way to the criminal investigation potentially in DOJ, to the select committee's point of view, about trying to help you know, instore, restore or instill a sense of feeling of integrity, look how wide reaching this really is. Even if Mike Pence was not to be duped, was the point to dupe the people who were already susceptible enough and willing enough to go to the Capitol and try to disrupt it? That's a scary, scary proposition. Scary, scary proposition is they're throwing shit to the wall and <laughs> waiting to see which one sticks. They're terrified because what is it called? What was that term they used to use when President Trump was in trouble? The walls are closing in. Right. That's what they say. The walls are closing in. The walls are closing in. Huh. You know, it's funny how a lot of people that were named on Ghislaine Maxwell's list all passed away. COVID and, you know, stupid shit. A lot of people are stepping down. You know, a lot of people laughed, you know, when, when I said, oh, he's stepping down because, you know, I'm, I'm suing him for the attorney general. You know, they say, cause they're dead. You're not, you're not supposed to you know, attack them when they're mourning, but I don't give a fuck. See, I filed my suit because I had my Fourth Amendment rights violated. I don't know if people know what the difference is between a criminal suit and a civil suit. A criminal suit means that you've committed a crime and I'm taking you to court. <coughs> civil suit is I can file anything the fuck I want and the burden of proof remains on the person. Now, I want to address this Fourth Amendment, and I'll use myself as an example so that people can understand how this works. In a civil suit, I can file whatever the hell I want. I could say that Jay Kimball Zero, who's in my Twitch feed, um, has done all of these things, and she's causing me all of these problems, and I can sue, right? I'll just 
freaking sue and I'll file it all. I'll file websites. I can make my shit up too and file it. Then the judge is going to say, all right, Tori, you, you filed all this and she's going to have to respond or he has to respond. But, um, you know, you got to prove it. Like, so how do you prove it? See, a lot of people like to talk a lot. She was done for fraud. Actually, I was not. Actually, I was done in for contempt of court. Because here's here's the thing. You need to give us this, but I don't have that. You're in contempt of court. How am I going to have something I don't have? You have been in my emails. You were in my house. You were wiretapping my phone. Here's the damn fucking secret subpoenas. You know exactly what I have. How am I going to give you something I don't have? Crickets on both ends. Because if people actually read my case, they'd know that. They'd know that judges violated my rights. Right? They'd know that too. And, you know, I like the way people are like, oh, look, it says she used this, like three social security numbers. Actually, it was in 2020, February 2020, that I discovered what that was. I was actually victim of a crime. I mean, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that. I had absolutely no idea. It was during a criminal trial that started in December that, you know, then was gone through arraignment in January that I was provided information to show me that I was a victim of a crime. So I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. So that means they knew. They knew that that was happening to me and my family, and they didn't say anything. And yet they were filing a bunch of shit. They also filed a bunch of fake shit. And I have people saying, yeah, well, you did it from then. And it's like, really? Why? Who told you that? Who told you that? If it was mine, I could change it. Who told you that? Who said that? Oh, they did. They did. Right. Then they file these, these fake ass charges and no, and I actually had my lawyer pull warrants. It wasn't me. I can't be five foot six and I'm not fucking Hispanic. So what's weird is, is that they knew and they still filed that shit knowingly and willingly because it wasn't about any justice. They didn't have a complaint. They didn't have a victim. They went on a fishing expedition and they had to file something because they were already monitoring me before they even filed a lawsuit. They had sent secret subpoenas, secret subpoenas, meaning they were telling people like my bank, Hey, you know what? You can't tell her that we gave you the subpoena. Just give us access to everything. So what they do is they utilize as much as they can to smear me. And then they put it in a filing kind of like, Oh, now Tori, you couldn't have had lawfare. So you're saying that everything that they did to president Trump was right. Oh, so you're saying that every single person that has come out to hit them, right. And take them down. <clears throat> it was rightfully done. Pricks. What was the complaint? They, they admit in the case that they had no complaint. So isn't that unlawful search and seizure if you have no legitimate reason to file secret subpoenas, investigate someone or anything like that?
And then people are like, you were charged 25000 Yeah, for contempt of court. And the 25000 was to pay that fucker who's now suicided. To, uh, I don't care what anybody says, right? He would go to Thailand to ride bicycles. He wasn't unhealthy. Okay? It was just to get everybody on the same page. They needed to make sure all the information was put together correctly. They needed to tie up loose ends. This is why they gave that false hope. And then they said he died. He had died. He was unresponsive at the scene. Why would I say that? Why would I say it's suicide weekend? Well, just so you guys know, my attorney sent a letter because these are the procedures of that state that I have to advise them that I'm going to sue them. Then I have to send him a letter and say, here are the names of all the people that I'm suing. So I had to name the judges that violated my rights because they let that shit go on on the lower court. It was the Supreme Court that told him to go fuck himself. The Supreme Court's decision, if anybody actually reads it when they talk shit, this is what disgusting people do. This is what the left does. This is what the agency does, right? They talk shit. If you actually read it, right? You'll see that they said, well, even though the court was wrong, you should have complied. And it's like, wait, what? It's like at me telling you, hey, you, give me the red shoes in your closet. And you're like, I don't have red shoes. Give me the red shoes in your closet. I really don't have any red shoes. You're in contempt of court. And it's like, how the, f how is that even possible? How is it about, yet, hey, hey, I'm still here. They did all that. I supposedly owe them 25,000. Why isn't anyone sending me any letters? Oh, that's right. Because they're getting sued. So that was actually processed. That was actually filed a week and a half ago. It was only a matter of time before they took him out. Right. And not took him out. He probably did it himself. He knew what was coming. He knew exactly what was coming. And this is why I talked about the $180 million fraud on the citizens and how they try to balance the books for the state bank uh, all over it. Mayor's next in my none. I mean, he's going to have to come up and say how that actually happened and how he gave me all that shit and how I have emails that show that he gave me everything. And while people are saying, you raise money for charity, I didn't raise a penny for charity. Okay. The charities were attached to performers. It was something they wanted, not me. Right. It was something that was for them, not me. He tried to ruin me. Where is he now? And where are other people that are pending serious prison time? You know, how is it that, oh, it just coincides. It was so coincidence that his third wife and her kid, his kid, whatever, were suddenly not there that that evening. They were all gone that evening. <laughs> are you kidding? Are you kidding? See, this is how it all comes out. Can, and now it has to come out on a national level because if people want to bring it out, we can start talking swamp. Don't forget his cousin was the chick on Epstein's jet, right? Nickelodeon peeps, right? Oxygen channel peeps, right? His cousin. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be fun at all. Not going to be fun at all. When he comes back trapped, it won't be very nice. So in the morning when I put that out, you know, when I put out, oh, guess I said it yesterday. Sounds like it's suicide because I knew that an investigation had already been opened. Listen, a lot of people are looking at everything I do. Good guys, bad guys, right? 
Remember, whole state went up my butt and all they came up with was a civil suit. All they came up with was a civil suit. That's it. And trolls posting things that I've never said, done, put together. Posting a site that had a website with Ali Akbar in there as a general torpedo specialist. <laughs> I picked that actually when they made it. <laughs> it has Caitlin Bennett as a Navy SEAL. It's the most stupidest thing I've ever heard. And yet there's people out there that trash me and say these things, right? Don't worry. It's going to be on you later. We're going to know who's funding you. That's how it works. When you go after good, when you attack good, either that be a child, a mom, a person, a whistleblower, anything, boy, does it have a way to come back to you? Okay. It comes back on you. And the more you attack, the more it comes back boomerang to you. And so this is how it works. You know, like, um, hold on a second. That's a very important phone call. Let me play. Let me play a quick clip and I'll be right back. One moment, guys. Give me one second. I'm going to play a quick musical interlude and I'll be right back. I can feel it coming in the air tonight Oh Lord And I've been waiting for this moment For all of my life Oh Lord Can you feel it? Can you feel it coming? 
guys sorry for that intermission you know sometimes you just can't not talk on the phone right uh so where do i begin so let's let me put it in context right my attorney i think it was the 17th of january filed the names the judges and the names and that gets put get that's that gets put on the books at the time that the first one was filed that takes i think 60 90 days for them to process and then you file the other case right which is uh the other intention to the office of um uh, management and budget that's where i had to send it because you can't just sue right that's their statute you have to tell us you're suing us because what they do is they prepare uh, all the information they need in order to win. So after the first one, right, uh, Wayne Stenjum stepped down saying, I'm not running again when he was supposed to be running for governor or running again. Right. So he stepped down and now that this investigation was open, which is, well, this is a fourth amendment violation. She's going to sue the shit out of us. You spoke with these people and you sent out an unredacted copy of a confession, seven fucking confessions, not one, seven prior to being even turned in. This is a crime. We're screwed. And then he ends up dead from an ulcer, but then he's healthy and then he dies. Seriously. See the rules of engagement in this construct is that you do not end your life because then you have to come and play again and it's not going to be nice because you're going to have to relive all those things again, per se, allegedly. You never escape. I think that's the way it goes. Now this, uh, you're not supposed to talk about people when they're mourning. But you know, Obviously, the assistant attorney generals can't say, I mean, I don't know about Perel Grossman. Now, that guy has a problem. And so does Hoven, who's also not seeking re-election. Probably because he was all part of this shit. But, see, while people talk, I, I, I see this. I get the media using my stuff and talking smack and attacking me. I totally get it, right? Because if they actually read the case, the only question he had was my money in my account. He had no business in that account, first of all. And then saying, oh, she spent it on McDonald's and QVC. That was my money. I can spend it as I want. Um, <laughs> it wasn't anybody else's. It, it was mine, right? But in the end, it was because I was in contempt of court because I couldn't provide what he wanted. And I urge everyone to take the thousands of pages and read it. It was not only malicious, malicious prosecution, right? It was an insanely grave mis violation of all civil rights. Now, he's dead, so they're going to throw him under the bus or they're going to settle. But I'm not going to settle. I will not settle. 
I will get this rectified. And every little thing will come out. Now, I may have misspoken. May have misspoken. I know the news said that Hoven's not running again, but apparently per his own words, he said he is. I guess maybe I just need to add him to that case filing. Yeah, he is seeking re-election. I saw that. Thank you. Um, so I may have misspoken on that one. I saw an article that said no, but it, it's okay. It'll come soon. It'll come soon. <laughs> the thing is, when when you're faced with crimes and to be shamed, you'd rather take yourself out faster so that way you're not a- around to see it. This is how they operate, kind of like that Louis Vuitton guy you know, that Ali Akbar praised. Oh, he, he totally died at the age of 48. I'm so sad. And it's like, you're sad. He was one of the co-defendants with Ghislaine Maxwell. No shit. You're sad. And you liked him. Okay. See, um, I'm not settling. I will ask for justice and it's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty wild. I, I had said, um, I even, I said it yesterday. Suicide weekend is coming along because I was told by a little bird that he was contacted for that information and it was done under his office. So he will be ultimately held responsible because that minion, Brian Card and the other, get this, he had over 20 attorney generals, right? And come on, look at the case. 20 attorney generals looking at me with no complaint, no fraud, right? I wasn't doing anything with the charities. That's a lie. You can even read what he filed and you can see that I had nothing to do with charities. So the question you should ask yourself is, all right, they found you, little old you. McCain, Gabe blew that whistle to him, right? They were besties, right? He's also on Obama's speed bell. You know, these limb people, how they, you know, they circle together. And then Suddenly they bury me in lawfare because they knew in 2016, I was one of the most vocal people in the state of North Dakota talking about fraud. Why? Because their voter rolls had non-U.S. citizens on them. As long as they showed their identification that they matched with the voter roll, they were allowed to vote. And I was super loud about that. Very loud about that. They hated me. The GOP couldn't stand Trump. (laughs) They hated the fact that I had filled up all of North Dakota with damn signs for Trump. They couldn't stand it. And all I did was call him to the carpet. And for anybody thinking that I talk, 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 but don't do, I actually confronted the late Wayne Stengem. And may God have mercy on his soul. Because regardless of the evil that he has caused, he's still one of his children. No matter, you know, I don't find pleasure in it because he will not be held accountable publicly for all those things that have happened. And I feel great sadness because no matter how evil you are inside, deep down inside, you are still his child. And remember, hell isn't something with burning snakes going through your mouth and stuff. Hell is what you create the lessons that you need to teach yourself and you come back and you teach yourself all those lessons. The best punisher is the perpetrator himself. And while many think that, uh, you know, uh, guilt and understanding, uh, how the process of, of divine justice works 
is is not applicable, they're wrong. The question you should ask yourself is, okay, so he committed suicide, right? They found a contractor, didn't say what kind of, I mean, I want to know what kind of contractor comes to your house at 827 in the morning when you're not doing renovations, by the way, and finds you unresponsive. Your wife and her kids or whatever aren't there for that evening. And they take you to the hospital and they have everyone sign NDAs and no one's allowed to talk about it. And then they're like, oh, it was just a stomach ulcer. It'll be fine. It's just, it's just so bizarre. Regardless, regardless, you know, still going to court, still suing. But it sounds really bizarre. First he steps down, then he dies all of a sudden. I don't know. seems pretty weird, doesn't it? So questions that people should be having is, all right, because a lot of people like to talk and they think they know things, right? But why is it that people commit suicide? Why do politicians do that? Or do they die just like that mayor in Maryland? I, 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 I have an inclinage of something that, I, that um, I'm working on in Maryland that may have to do with that too that mayor in Maryland, but that's still preliminary. So this is just, I'm throwing it out there. The worst thing they can do is be around when they get caught. That's one thing yeah, that they don't like being shamed. They want to avoid the shame. They think because they're dead, it's fine. It's not just because you're mourning and because he's dead doesn't mean <laughs> that um, you get away with it. Just because you're not president anymore doesn't mean I can't impeach you, right? I mean, they made that law. So just because you you killed yourself or had a stomach ulcer that killed you, even though you're like super strong as an ox, right? You can still be posthumously stripped of your titles. Justice never comes in a Ferrari. It comes in on a donkey. But I wanted to tell you guys, the Fourth Amendment is what we need to be focusing on. And I'm more than happy to share the trials and tribulations I've been through. I have no problem with it. I have nothing to hide. And jury, you know, you know anyone, anyone that says different is obviously not a friend of the truth. Um, let me show you about civil suits. Because, you know, a lot of people say they're going to sue. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. Right? So I'm suing. I'm suing for defamation. Right? I'm suing for defamation. I'm suing uh, Dominion for defaming me. Right. And I think it would it would constitute libel. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Right. My lawyers know this stuff. I'm suing Huffington Post. I'm suing um, Media Matters. I'm suing Ali Akbar. Right. Suing Congressman Cohen. Right. For defamation. So I filed the lawsuit and I have to prove that they defame me. I mean, a simple Google search and that's all you need. Right. And the letters that Dominion's attorney sent me too. Right. So. Um, the question one should ask is, 
So I have to prove it. That's how it goes, that I have to prove that I'm right. Now, many, many times in a civil suit, if you're fact-finding, then it doesn't drag on, right? In my suit with the attorney general, there was no fact-finding. He was throwing things. I was like, that's not mine. Why are you showing that? Well, we found, and I was like, you're an attorney general. You just filed this shit when you know that's not mine. And he was like, well, it's on the internet and we've collected. And I was like, so can I have the names of the people? That's not her business. Block her from using the internet. Why would someone block me from using the internet if I've engaged in violating the rule of registering as a charity? Tell me how that makes sense to any of you. Doesn't make sense, does it? Makes no sense. You know, what do you sue? Someone that's homeless, that lives in motels? Or do you go after the real people where you can actually have accountability? You don't bother with losers that constantly say, sue me, and I'm just going to attack everyone, right? Or people that think they're anonymous. Like, you're not anonymous behind that little computer picture. Totally not anonymous. And I'll show you why your Fourth Amendment is not applicable anymore. Because Twitter has a database with all your information, your IP information, your phone numbers, your device ID. Damn, when subpoenas are thrown and they get your device ID, it's game over. But, you know, people think that they're anonymous and I'm just doing the right thing. Well, here's where the burdens of proof is. Let's learn about this. Hi, Attorney Steve Vondra, Licensed Practice Law in California and Arizona, and we are back to the Attorney Steve Whiteboard. All right. So this video, we're talking about burdens of proof. You may have heard this, and you, you may have just got served with a lawsuit. You may be filing a lawsuit, and you may be wondering, who has to prove the case? Who proves what? Is it Do I have to prove it, or do they have to prove it? Now, normally when a plaintiff files a complaint, okay, here's your plaintiff and they file a complaint, normally in most cases, the plaintiff is going to bear the burden of proof, okay? In other words, they're gonna to have to prove what they're saying in their complaint is true, okay? They're gonna to have to come up with evidence, evidence, okay? Some things are easy to allege and hard to prove, like uh, fraud, in, intent to defraud, specific actual fraud. It sometimes can be easy to allege and hard to prove, but the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, okay? Now, in general, let's talk about burden of proofs for just a second, because a lot of you, a lot of you have probably watched a lot of TV and you see criminal law cases, okay? Usually in a criminal law case, here's my little burden of proof, here's my little burden of proof chart. I know it's not really neat. But this is Attorney Steve Whiteboard. We do the best we can with what we have here. So, but the most demanding burden of proof in the legal system is what's known as beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay? So let's just call that barred. Barred. Okay? Beyond a reasonable doubt. That means that the, the in, and usually in a criminal case, by the way, it's the prosecutor or the attorney general or somebody that has the burden of proof. It's not your plaintiff in a civil suit. In a criminal suit, it is your prosecutor. It's the person um, charging you with a felony or a misdemeanor. They have the burden of proof to show it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I'm not a criminal attorney, so I'm not going to go into... I wanted to pause it for a second. So remember, there's two things. And thank you very much uh, to the listener that put it down there. Burden of proof in a civil case is 51%. Burden of proof in a criminal case is 100%. Now, um, 
the uh, I I was actually lawfared in a civil suit. I was asking him to take me to uh you know criminal court, but they were like, oh no, we're all looking for criminal charges. I was like, why not? Let's go. Why? They use it as a cloak to get information, so they're allowing themselves to send more secret subpoenas because they have you under suit to find a crime, which means that I was riddled from top to bottom and they found no crime. I actually have no criminal record. And one thing that's floating around, people should be very careful because if they're floating that around as something real and they can actually read in the lawsuit that that was dismissed is not being me. You know, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. But, you know, then they claim, well, I didn't read 3,000 pages of the case. Then, then why are you talking? Why are you talking? If you two, two cases, two. You know how, hey, see, people don't get it. They just keep going and going. Remember, this is also for what's going on with other people right now, right? The defamation suit against Sidney Powell, the defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani, the defamation suit against Mike Lindell, the defamation suit against Patrick Byrne. Remember, they're going to have to show with over 51% burden that what they did was to cause defamation. Now, if they all made statements that can't be validated, that could be a problem, right? That could be a very big problem. You know, I, for me, I'm not, I'm not, for me, I'm not showing that not only was I lawfare, malicious prosecution, lawfare with the intent to cause harm because they affected my family too, right? When people are going off and saying things without reading. This is what happened with President Trump. They started putting stuff out, you know, hookers, drunks, drug addicts, people that are, you know, you know, hiding behind anonymous things, saying all this stuff about President Trump and, and still they found nothing. So all they're doing is civilly, a civil suit. So Basically, when you hear they're investigating the Trump family, no, you can, I can file a civil suit about anything as long as I can prove that it was done with good intentions, which again, in my case, there is no good intention, right? Because the calls are monitored and recorded <laughs> because I asked, Hey, how did I get to the top of a pile? Can I see the complaint? I don't have to show you anything. You just need to give me stuff. And I was like, um, that's not how the law works, right? And suddenly, this is how they come. So think about it. President Trump and his company, they may find a hair out of place. It could be something like, oh, your website's not ADA compliant for blind people. We're going to investigate. So here you go, filing a civil suit so you can start getting shit on the Trump family, hoping that you can get them. I'm, I'm showing you little guy person, me, compared to big guy person, okay? Because they're both the same MOs. This is how they go fishing. What did, what did prosecutors and investigators, what have they said before? It, first of all, in an indictment, you can indict a ham sandwich. It doesn't mean it's going to fly, right? You can indict a ham sandwich. But Letitia James, if you notice, she's doing the same thing. She's filing shit from the internet. I, I, dead serious. She's filing shit that someone allegedly said at some point, takes it and says, now I'm investigating the Trump family. And it's like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. How does that work? Where's the burden of proof? Let's see. To all the little minutia philosophical conversation about what beyond a reasonable doubt means. I think, you know, it means a, a doubt that's it, it have, it, there really can't be a good explanation as to as to why a defendant did or didn't do something. It has to be 
sufficient. It's almost better just to recite the rule beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, if, it, if there's a reasonable doubt, something that could be true, um, that's plausible, then maybe it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's your most demanding burden of proof that you'll find in a court of law. Another one that you often see is what we call clear and convincing. Okay, clear and convincing evidence. Now this, for example, this pops up in our Department of Real Estate or Bureau of Real Estate cases where somebody is being charged with disciplinary violations in regards to their real estate license, okay? So where you have a, a broker that may have uh, lost trust funds, uh, commingled money, committed dishonest acts of dishonest dealing, real estate fraud, those kinds of things, you end up in this administrative hearing process where you're fighting for your license. In those cases, the standard of proof is clear and convincing evidence. Okay, what's that? Well, it's less than beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's more than the next one I'm gonna tell you about, which is the preponderance of the evidence. Poe, we'll call that Poe, okay? Call this C and C, okay? So the standard that normally applies in a civil lawsuit is the preponderance of the evidence standard. Okay, that's usually what a plaintiff has to show. This person committed, this person com committed uh, a fiduciary duty breach, a breach of fiduciary duty. You have as plaintiff the burden to prove that by a preponderance of the evidence. Now, what's the preponderance of the evidence? You know, some people call it the, you know, if you think of the hands of justice, it's the more likely than not, it's the 51% versus the 49%. That's kind of what you're looking at when you're talking about a preponderance of the evidence. And this preponderance of the evidence for a second. Who's filing the lawsuit against the Trump family? It's an attorney general. So immediately the POE, just because it's the attorney general, has been completely jumped over. Right? Right? So <clears throat> in a civil suit, uh, you know. Letitia just files whatever she wants and she's the attorney general. I won't, I won't bring stuff. If, if, you know, I can't back it, this is taxpayer dollars. I could be done in for fraud. So she has something that she knows is ironclad to come in, right? That she knows that she can use to pass that little thing to nudge it so that the case could go forward. Right. Just like Dominion started putting out all these press releases and bullshit, right? It's, it's, you know, it's that they try to tip it so they can get in, so they can hop over a motion to dismiss, right? For me, when when I remember when he was filing stuff, like uh, the first case was order for production. I said, I don't have to give you shit. Fourth Amendment. You know, do you have any lawful, this is unlawful search and seizure. You know, you know what the judge turned around and said, this isn't your show. And I was like, well, I'm not giving you shit. I don't have to. You haven't given me a complaint. You have no reason to be asking me for my emails and my contacts or anything. You need to just go away, right? And then his next filing was, don't let her use the internet. And then the judge was like, well, I told you, you better give it to him. And I'm like, for what? He has no reason to ask me for that. So that judge is in trouble because he's part of the lawsuit. Now, Letitia, she's all in. She's all in, just like Kim Fox, right? And a lot of them, they're going down hard. It's a misuse of office. It's abuse of office, right? It's malicious prosecution. 
they're not prosecuting, so it would be malicious lawfare, right? Misuse of office, which then you have to wait till the case is over. Now, usually, um, you know, defendants can win their cases and then sue them. How many times has she come after President Trump? A lot of times. Has she gotten him into criminal court? No. In fact, she's failed. Uh, has President Trump sued her back? Not yet. So let her come in at it again because he should have just filed a, you know, malicious prosecution of it, but he didn't. He's like, no, it'll be like the president suing the AG for investigating him. He's trying to hide something, so he can't, right? This is how it goes. But just because you go through it and you have an AG, it's not like a person filing that shit. They immediately have the upper hand because they own the justice system. You have to remember that. The AG of a state owns the justice system. They report to the attorney general. The attorney general is in charge. It's not the prosecutors. It's not, they are part of, they're like representatives of, in a sense, the DOJ. So the question is, what's the DOJ doing, right? And remember, they're spending tax dollars for this. It would be quite interesting to see if taxpayers actually filed lawsuits against Letitia James for bringing on these frivolous suits because they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, Wayne Stemgen asked for $25,000 for me to pay his fees because he investigated me with no complaint. <laughs> That's so weird. So why isn't, why, you know, maybe New York Patriots... You know, once we get this up and running for the organization for everything, I think the attorneys that will be attached to that union, the People's Union, should file a lawsuit in New York suing Letitia James on behalf of New York residents for malicious, you know, um, misuse and abuse of taxpayer dollars. How much has it cost us that you sue Trump and you go all the way up to the Supreme Court and still lose and then you're back at it again? That's misuse of tax dollars. So once we get that set up, I know we're trying to get that set up. All New York residents need to sign on to that and sue the shit out of the AG. You know, no one in North Dakota is going to do it for me because like many people, I didn't have a big microphone uh, in the state and nobody liked me because I was going after the good old boys, right? They're all a good network. But in the end, you know, vexatious litigation does come back at you regardless. And that's actually something that I wrote. I was pro se. I was responding to all my cases. This was horrific. And it happened to me. And then people use it against me. Why? I own it. Did you go to bat with the swamp? <laughs> Let me guess. You came out unscathed? <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's... That's the thing. This is what they're doing to President Trump because a new investigation has now been started by Letitia James. So the question is, huh? What are what can we do about it? We can file a lawsuit, right? I'm not a New York resident, but I'm from New York, born and bred right there. We can get that done. We can sue, but we got to get the lawyers um, on it. That's the one thing that I um, that that we need to get done. We got to sue the attorney general of New York for vexatious litigation and um, abuse of office because she ran and we can win the POE portion of it. She ran. We got that video, don't we? 
elect me and we're going to get Trump. And it's like, that's not where your job is, bitch. Your job is to make sure that the state of New York is not being affected and that you run the justice system blind. See, uh, this is, this is, I already had a go at one of the biggest swamp creatures. I may be surprised if they actually parade him around in a casket. I wonder if they'll have a casket for all the little children too. Hmm. It's more disgusting. It's the most disgusting thing. Remember, he was invited personally to McCain's funeral. He wasn't a low hitter. Remember, his cousin ran with Epstein. They own Nickelodeon and Oxygen. Don't let things deceive you because you think that you know. So burden of proof. So she, Letitia, can actually get her leg in the door, right? Uh, because she's the attorney general. <sighs> But let me let me play this clip for you. This is a quite nice cartoon too. Give me a sec. I think you'll enjoy it. Guilty or not. But there's another choice that neither, that neither the, the judge, judge nor the lawyers will tell you, often because they're not allowed to, and also because it might be better if you don't know. This video will tell you that third choice, but be warned, simply watching may prevent you from ever serving on a jury. So this is your last chance to hit the pause button before you learn about jury nullification. When the defendant is 100% beyond a reasonable doubt guilty, but the jurors also think he shouldn't be punished. The jury can nullify the law and let him go free. But before you're on your next jury and yell null booyah at the judge, you should know that just talking about jury nullification in the wrong circumstances can get you arrested. Though a video such as this one simply acknowledging the existence of jury nullification and in no way advocating it is totally okay. And while we're at it, CGP Grey is not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. This is meant for entertainment purposes only. Seriously, guy, don't do anything in a court of law based on what an internet video told you. No joke. So why can't you do this? It's because nullification isn't in the law, but exists as a logical consequence of two other laws. First, the juries can't be punished for a wrong decision, no matter what the witnesses, DNA evidence, or video proof show. That's the point of a jury, to be the final decider. And second, when a defendant is found not guilty, that defendant can't be tried again for the same crime. So there are only two stated options, guilty or not. It's just that jury nullification is when the words of the jurors don't match their thoughts, for which they can't be punished and their not guilty decision can't be changed. These laws are necessary for juries to exist within a fair system, but the logical consequence is contentious. Lawyers and judges argue about jury nullification like physicists argue about quantum mechanics. Both are difficult to observe, and the interpretation of both has a huge philosophical ramification for the subject as a whole. Is jury nullification the righteous will of the people, or an anarchy of 12, or just how citizens judge their laws? The go-to example in favor of nullification is the fugitive slave law, when northern juries refuse to convict escaped slaves and set them free. Can't argue with that. But the anarchy side is southern juries refusing to convict lynch mobs, not humanity at its best, but both of these are juries nullifying the law. And also, juries have two options for where their thoughts may differ from their words. Jury nullification usually refers to the non-guilty version, but juries can convict without evidence just as easily as they can acquit in spite of it. This is jury nullification too, and the jurors are protected by the first rule, though the second doesn't apply, and judges do have the power to overrule a guilty verdict if they think the jurors are in the best. And of course, a guilty defendant can appeal, at least for a little while, which makes the guilty form of jury nullification weaker than the not guilty kind.
cold comfort, though. Given the possibility of jurors who might ignore the law as written, it's not surprising when picking jurors for a trial, lawyers, whose existence is dependent on an orderly society, will ask about nullification usually in the slightly roundabout way. Do you have any beliefs that might prevent you from making a decision based strictly on the law? If, after learning about jury nullification, you think it's a good idea, answer yes and you'll be rejected, but answer no with the intent to get on the jury to nullify and you've just committed perjury, technically a federal crime, which makes the optimal strategy once on a jury to zip it. But this introduces a problem for jurors who intend to nullify. Telling the other 11 angry men about your position is risky, which makes nullification as a tool for fixing unjust laws nationwide problematic. Not to mention about 95% of criminal charges in the United States never make it to trial and rather end in a plea bargain, but that's a story for another time. The only question about jury nullification that may matter in the end is if jurors should be told about it, and the courts are near universal in their decision, no way. Which, again, might seem self-interested. Courts do depend on the law, but there's evidence that telling jurors about nullification changes the way they vote by making evidence less relevant to them, which isn't surprising, that's what nullification is. But mock trials also show sympathetic defendants get more non-guilty verdicts and unsympathetic defendants get more guilty verdicts in front of jurors who were explicitly told about nullification compared to those who weren't. Which sounds bad, but it's also easy to imagine situations where jurors blindly following the law would be terribly unjust. In the end, righteous will of the people, or anarchy, or citizen lawmaking, the system leaves you to decide, but as long as courts are fair, they require these rules, so jury nullification will always be with us. See, I uh, showed this video for a few reasons. One, we have to refresh our memory because this is going to be coming up soon, right? And it's good to know these things. Two, it's going to be coming up soon. And you need to know these things. Now, tomorrow, I believe that it would be a good time for us to get together and um, start sending some emails to the Attorney General of New York to ask him this simple question, the same question that I asked where it showed that my rights were violated. We should ask Letitia, can you please provide the complaint and or evidence of loss, monetary loss, or whatever else she claims in her case. I will look at it and I will post it. That prompted you to open up an investigation into the Trump family. See, the one thing people don't understand is you can't just start an investigation with taxpayer dollars because you feel like it, right? You can't. See, that happened to me. <laughs> so I'm telling you, you can't. That is against the law. So I think maybe this time we can all put our efforts to send this nice letter, right? And say, hey, as taxpayers, we just want to know, like, uh, um, can you, like, send us a copy of the complaint that prompted this investigation? You can't just say, I ran on the fact that, I'm telling you, man, all we need is to file a lawsuit. It's got to be we the people. And, and New York, you, the residents, have every right to standing on that shit. Every right to standing, to ask why she's spending your tax dollars with no fucking complaint. And you can demonstrate that she is utilizing her position and had always intended to utilize her position to get Trump because she said that with her own words. So make sure we have those videos archived. I know I shared it on Twitter and I wanted to remind you guys, don't forget this video. Because I think now it's important for us to move forward in that section. And the way that will be done is because through the discovery that I will get with my case, with my attorneys that we so much love in North Dakota, it will allow us 
to be able to see how they'll answer a question without having the basis to begin a prosecution. In my case, I'm grateful for Now, a lot of people will be like, what? They trash. I'm actually really grateful. I'm grateful that it went to court. I'm grateful I stood my ground because if I didn't have that case, right, a lot of people wouldn't know who I am. And I could have went out with a whimper in the middle of the night, but I refused to let that happen. I started going as public as I could to make sure I had cover of the people. So questions would be asked. So this will assist in nailing down the ramifications that we can bring on the New York Attorney General, Letitia. She's using taxpayer dollars. She's she's initiating investigations, civil suits against the Trump organization, the Trump kids, numerous times, has lost and keeps going. So... We need to find out what prompts them. I mean, someone has to file a complaint and say, uh, you know, Ivanka, you know, said something mean to me. Okay. Is that why you're investigating? Show us who said that. Show us the complaint. I want to see the complaint. I'm auditing you, bitch. I want to see why you started another investigation. Show me, show me. See, these are the way we get answers. The way we get answers is by asking the right questions. Why are you investigating? Show me. Where is your probable cause? Show me. I do not consent to you using federal or state taxpayer dollars to investigate someone with no probable cause. Just because you don't like someone doesn't mean you can investigate. That's the truth, right? They can't do it. Now let's listen to what Amy Comey Barrett said during her time uh, under fire to be confirmed about the Fourth Amendment. Under versus U.S. And it outlined just how far the Constitution pro, uh, protects searches of electronic evidence. It was a 5-4 decision, and the court ruled that law enforcement must obtain a warrant in order to track a person's cellular location information beyond seven days. Justice Thomas and Gorsuch both dissented, and Justice Gorsuch objected that the majority's reasonable expectation of privacy standard was not faithful to the Fourth Amendment text. Instead, uh, Justice Gorsuch reasoned the Fourth Amendment protects only those searches included in the original text, searches of persons, houses, places, and effects. Uh, Some critics of originalism complained that today's laws should not be governed by the dead hand of the past. Can you explain to us how the Fourth Amendment can still govern the modern world's searches and seizures, and how will it continue, how will it continue to apply to emerging technologies that the founders never could have imagined? Sure. So I think as a general matter, you know, the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And it doesn't mean that it protects only the kinds of searches and seizures that those who lived at the time of the adoption of the Bill of Rights could have anticipated. So surely they couldn't have anticipated the Internet or cell phones or 
you know, airplanes for that matter. Um, but one can reason from the kinds of privacy protections that were in place in 1791 when the Fourth Amendment was ratified to see if the search of modern technology now is analogous to it. So one example is the Kylo case. Justice Scalia wrote that opinion, and that's a case um, where law enforcement had used an infrared detector to see if someone was growing, I think it was marijuana on the inside, and they could use the infrared to see if it lit up, if people were using heat lamps right. essentially inside. And Justice Scalia said that, yes, that was a search, you know, that the Fourth Amendment did apply and the police had to have a warrant. Even though that technology didn't exist at the time, it was the same kind of invasion um, into the home. And so it didn't matter that, you know, infrared machines were not in the contemplation of the generation that ratified the Fourth Amendment. Okay. And then um, is there a difference between searching for data via a device that is in a person's possession and searching for, uh, say, data on the servers that are hosting? Let's see. So that would be a question I probably can't answer. In okay. addition to the Fourth Amendment, there would also be statutes that, you know, govern how much data one could mine. So that would be one of those legal hypothetical situations that I wouldn't be able to answer in the context of the hearing. All right. Um, let's end it at that so that you can get out of here. There are a couple of things that uh, tomorrow we're going to have time and we will talk about a couple of those other questions, uh, campus free speech, executive overreach, uh, a couple of other things we'd like to have on the record. But uh, thank you very So people believe that they have protection. Here's the problem. Someone brought up electric bill, and I don't know in what essence, but I wanted to tell you this. When you sign up for an electric company, and I know this because I signed up for one with my daughter's home, you know, because I had to set it up for her, right? Um, they ask you for your social security number. See, that data is easily retrievable no matter what on a list. Your data on Twitter, I heard a lot of people saying, they can't device. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Your device ID is locked in. You should read the terms and conditions on Twitter, on Telegram. That's why they use your phone number because it goes with your device ID. That's how Twitter can auto ban you. If you use the same device to sign up, you could change your phone number. But if you have the same cell phone, you won't be able to stay on there long. They will be able to take you down. Facebook, you have no anonymity. Your data is everywhere. Anyone can touch it. E. Pauline was using Gmail when she was formulating that fucking draft EO that want to pin on Rudy Giuliani. See, those things are all open. If you have nothing to hide for what you say, right, on, you know, you have no problem with attribution with what you post and what you say, then that's fine. But if you're talking shit, and you're pretending you're some investigator and digger and, oh, look at me, I know, you're fucked. Because, see, the internet, your social media, is actually uh, a legal mean of communication. And there were uh, a lot of people that were served via social media when they couldn't be seen. Therefore, if the court accepts you being served on the internet, 
You think they won't accept the shit you said pretending you're anonymous behind a little computer screen on your picture? They will take you down faster. Because at one point, people need to understand that the Fourth Amendment doesn't really exist. It really does not. The Fourth Amendment does not exist because everybody has your data. So you are not safe. Now, you can argue that it was done in unconventional methods. You can argue that it was erroneously or uh, presented to the court, but it's still search and seizure, and there's no law that protects you. There is no Internet Bill of Rights. You are zero protected. You are not protected at all. They have everything, every text. You know, Bill Binney once said, there's no point in using Signal and crypty apps. I mean, yeah, okay, disappearing messages, because maybe it could be dumped, right, fast enough, right? But all your messages, all your texts, all your calls or your images, everything is already on a database. I mean, you guys were at Jan 6 and they had illegal search and seizure of your banking records from the Bank of America to pinpoint hundreds of thousands of Americans in D.C. Where is the outrage? Oh, I see. It's no big deal, is it? And that's what sucks. Now, let's talk more of what people perceive that the Fourth Amendment is. Now, you have to, while you listen to this, you have to think, how does this apply to electronic people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment is triggered when there is a search or seizure by the government, which typically means the police. But the Fourth Amendment applies to any government agent. It does not apply to your nosy neighbor or friend who looks through your home. A thing is searched when there is a trespass to persons, houses, papers, or effects. At its most basic form, the amendment is about situations when the government intrudes upon a person's property. Beyond this, however, the Supreme Court has recognized situations where a person reasonably expects privacy. For example, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a public restroom, but not in a public street. A thing is seized if the government takes it. A person is seized if a police officer applies force or makes a show of authority that is followed by submission to that authority. Once triggered, the Fourth Amendment requires reasonableness. The search or seizure must be reasonable for it to be constitutional. What makes it reasonable? If there is a warrant or an exception applies. Generally, the government needs a warrant to conduct a search or seizure. A warrant is a legal document issued by a judge to authorize this power. For a warrant to be properly issued, it needs to to be based on probable cause issued by a neutral and detached magistrate and described with particularity. Probable cause is the fair probability or logical belief that a crime has been, is being, or will be committed. 
based on objective facts and circumstances. The judge issuing the warrant cannot be part of the investigation or otherwise so connected to it to question their judgment. And the place to be searched and person or things to be seized needs to be described with particularity to limit the government from searching anywhere or seizing anything or anyone. If the government does not have a warrant but still carries out a search or seizure, it may still be reasonable if an exception applies. Here are some of the most used exceptions. Consent. If a police officer gets permission from the individual whose person or property is being searched or seized, then there is no need to get a warrant. However, the permission must be given voluntarily. The police must not coerce the person into giving consent. Plain view. If an officer sees something obviously incriminating, where the officer is legally allowed to be, the plain view exception allows them to seize the evidence. Crucially, the officer must have legally been at the vantage point, and the incriminating character of the object must be immediately apparent. Sitla, search incident to lawful arrest. This exception allows an officer to perform a warrantless search of an arrested person and the area within the arrested person's immediate control. The reasoning behind this is for officer safety and to preserve evidence. The vehicle exception allows the search of a vehicle if the officer has probable cause to believe that evidence is in the vehicle. The reasoning behind this exception is to keep evidence from moving away because of how mobile vehicles are. The idea being that if we make officers get warrants, the car could be long gone by the time they get it. Terry Stop and Terry Search, named after the landmark case Terry v. Ohio, which established this exception. This is an exception to the warrant and probable cause requirements. So an officer doesn't need to get a warrant, nor do they need to have the highest level of suspicion. The officer needs only reasonable suspicion, more than a hunch, but less than probable cause. Reasonable suspicion is based on articulable individualized facts that show that criminal activity is afoot. If the officer has reasonable suspicion, they can briefly stop the person to investigate for the purpose of confirming or denying the reasonable suspicion. If the suspicion is dispelled, the seizure must stop. The officer may also perform a cursory protective inspection based on reasonable suspicion that the person is armed and dangerous, again to confirm or deny the suspicion. This means a quick over-the-clothes pat-down to check if the person has a weapon. So what happens if there is no warrant and no exception applies, and the government performs an unconstitutional search or seizure? That's when the exclusionary rule applies. Illegally obtained evidence cannot be used against the person whose rights were violated, thus incentivizing police officers into gathering evidence properly. So let's review. The Fourth Amendment applies when the government searches or seizes. Once triggered, the Fourth Amendment requires reasonableness, which means a warrant or an exception. A warrant must be based on probable cause issued by a neutral and detached magistrate, and the person, place, or thing to be searched or seized must be described with particularity. Some exceptions include consent, plain view, vehicle exception, and the Terry stop and search. If the Fourth Amendment is violated, the evidence is excluded from court. I don't remember the case, but it was recent, a couple of years ago. I think it was actually in the state of North Dakota. There were these guys and they were driving and the cop knew that they had drugs in their car, but he couldn't catch them because he wasn't, he, he, he had the inclination that, you know, that's what happened. Or something like that. I don't remember. But anyway, he stopped the car. He unlawfully stopped the car. And they opened the trunk and searched it and found a shit ton of weed and ecstasy pills and stuff like that and arrested them. Turns out they walked free, obviously lost all their gear, but they walked free because the stop was unlawful. See, um, 
that's a, a pretty interesting uh, <laughs> uh, statement that I just told you, but maybe we should get into uh, the Fourth Amendment exceptions to the warrant. This is a fantastic series from Law Shelf. Learn this because this is going to be very, very top of the news very soon. The Founding Fathers wrote the Fourth Amendment after their experiences with British officials who would use general warrants and writs of assistance to enter private homes and conduct searches to find evidence of any crime. The Fourth Amendment outlaws this practice and requires that search or arrest warrants particularly describe the places to be searched or things to be seized and requires that they be issued by neutral and detached magistrates. The U.S. Supreme Court has asserted that the most basic constitutional rule in this area is that searches conducted outside the judicial process without prior approval by judge or magistrate are per se unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. Still, there are exceptions to the idea that warrantless searches are always unreasonable. These exceptions are jealously and carefully drawn so that police must always seek a warrant unless an exception applies. In these presentations, we'll look at the six major exceptions to the warrant requirement to better understand their scopes. The first three exceptions covered in this presentation are search incident to a lawful arrest, consent, and plain view. Let's start with search incident to a lawful arrest. Police do not have to have a warrant to conduct a search incident to a lawful arrest. When conducting a lawful arrest, police may search the person, any area surrounding her, and any area within her wingspan. Courts permit such a warrantless search as a protective measure for police safety and to secure evidence that might otherwise be destroyed. Although it's primarily meant to secure police from the threat of weapons being accessible to the person being arrested, the police may search and seize any contraband they find during such a search. This exception was developed by the United States Supreme Court's 1969 decision, California v. Chimmel. In that case, police conducted a one-hour search of the defendant's home after he was arrested for alleged involvement in a coin store burglary. The search revealed coins, medals, and other items that led to his conviction. While the court invalidated the search as excessive and unreasonable because it included the whole house, it did establish that the police may search the area within the immediate reach of the person being arrested. Just as Potter Stewart wrote, When an arrest is made, it is reasonable for the arresting officer to search the person arrested in order to remove any weapons that the latter might seek to use in order to resist arrest or effect his escape. Otherwise, the officer's safety might well be endangered, and the arrest itself is frustrated. In addition, it is entirely reasonable for the arresting officer to search and seize any evidence on the arrestee's person in order to prevent its concealment or destruction. Since Chimmel, several cases have analyzed the scope of the exception. In the 2009 case, Arizona v. Gantt, the court concluded that police may search the vehicle from which a person is being arrested if police reasonably believe that the occupant could access the vehicle at the time of the search or that the vehicle contains evidence of the offense that led to the arrest. On the other hand, the exception doesn't apply to searches of a defendant's cell phone after his arrest. In Riley v. United States, San Diego police found David Riley in possession of firearms during a search after arresting him for driving on a suspended license. Police accessed Riley's cell phone, which was in his pocket, to examine photographs and videos and saw photographic evidence of gang affiliations. Riley's attorney sought suppression of the evidence, arguing that the search violated his Fourth Amendment rights, and the court agreed prohibiting warrantless searches of cell phones in all but exigent circumstances. 
None of the two justifications for the exception articulated in Schimmel, officer safety or the destruction of evidence, would justify police searching a cell phone without a warrant. Second exception to the warrant requirement is consent. Consent, by definition, waives the Fourth Amendment right against warrantless searches. The consent exception is important and practical in application. One study completed in the last 10 years found that 90% of warrantless searches are based on consent. To be valid, consent must be free and voluntary. However, it's important to note that police need not inform people of their right to refuse searches. So, for example, at a traffic stop, a police officer may ask for consent to search the vehicle. If the driver agrees, then the consent is valid, even if the driver had no idea that he had the right to refuse. The government carries the burden of proving that the defendant freely and voluntarily provided consent. In the 1973 case, Schneckcloth v. Bustamante, the Supreme Court explained voluntary consent. There, police stopped an automobile and asked the vehicle occupants if they could search the car. The defendant replied, sure, go ahead. And during the subsequent police search, police found three checks that had previously been stolen from a car wash. The court found that there was no Fourth Amendment violation. Both defendants and the police testified that the interactions between the two parties were congenial and that there was no discussion of crime. One of the defendants even attempted to aid in the search. For consent to be nullified, the facts must demonstrate that the police used duress or coercion to obtain consent. A wrinkle to the consent exception is that police can obtain consent from someone other than the owner of the property being searched. A third party, who law enforcement reasonably believes has authority to give consent, can allow police to search another's property, as in the case of a babysitter who allows police to search the house. If police reasonably believed that the babysitter was the homeowner, her consent is valid. Determining whether an officer's belief that a third party may consent on behalf of another is reasonable is a fact-specific evaluation. Law enforcement officers do not need warrants to seize evidence of a criminal activity in plain view if they are legitimately in the locations from which the evidence can be viewed. The Supreme Court explained that a person generally does not have a legitimate expectation of privacy in contraband left in the open, which is viewed by an officer from a lawful vantage point. In the seminal case, Horton v. California, the defendant and an accomplice were suspected of having used a machine gun and a stun gun to steal cash and jewelry. The search warrant only allowed police to search for the stolen property and did not include authorization to search for the weapons. When police executed the warrant, they didn't find any stolen property, but did find guns in plain view. The search was permissible. Three requirements must exist for the exception to apply. First, police must be in the area legally. Second, police must observe the item of criminality in plain view. Finally, the incriminating nature of the evidence must be immediately apparent, meaning that there needs to be a connection between the viewed object and illegal conduct. The plain view exception also applies to allow police to seize contraband that is visible from public places, such as drug paraphernalia visible from the street through an open window. In the following presentation, we will discuss three more exceptions to the warrant requirement, stop and frisk, the automobile exception, and exigent circumstances. Before we get to the next stop, I'll tell you why we're talking about this. So I've been talking about your data not being protected. And if you remember, um, Millie did that video about quicks and Q and X. And, you know, now let the conspiracy theories fly that, you know, I somehow suicided Wayne Stenjum and, you know, all of this, you know, with Q and X and Blackberry. Well, here's the thing, right? 
there are open investigations into this. The FBI had purchased um, a version of a software tool called Pegasus. It was uh, the NSO's top, top tool that was used for um, spying. It is um, an Israeli company, NSO Group. I've, I, I've talked about it before when I told you that they have like a database where they can identify terrorists, that they could say, based on your face shape, you're more likely to be a terrorist, right? Anyway, NSO is a group um, that uh, is Israeli, and um, they're, well, actually, it was Israeli computer engineers, um, was it New York or New Jersey? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, they um, introduced the product Pegasus uh, in 2011. Uh, this is how uh, people were able to capture El Chapo, which I don't get because he wasn't that hard to get. Sean Penn had a private interview with him, you know, so I call bullshit on that one. Um, uh, people uh, like all countries has taken this commercialized product that they created for spying called Pegasus. Um, now this uh, product, I, I must say, uh, was used to see if anyone's organizing any crimes, child trafficking rings, human trafficking rings, you know, kind of to find links and, and look. And basically, um, uh, because they believe that criminals and people that are higher up that get into all this rubbish, they encrypt their comms. You know, they needed software they can not only trace, but decrypt pretty well, too. Now, um, for example, um, Pegasus uh, is uh, software that is used in the Middle East to track down, you know, um, dissidents. Some may claim that Jamal Khashoggi had that weapon used against him. Uh, that was actually, I think, insinuated um, by someone at WAPO. Um, uh, AFRICOM uses it. Secret Service, the DA, a lot of people use it. Um, the FBI also uses it. And what they do is, uh, you know, they use it in order to be able to hack into your phone so they can see what you're doing. See, the way Pegasus works is that you don't have to open up some phishing email, right? You don't have to open up some phishing email. You don't have to install some software, right? It doesn't work like that. All you need... Um, to do is uh, get the phone information to hack it. Um, and then the computer does the rest. So every everything you post, you tweet, clones your phone, basically. Let's just say it that way. So the FBI has been using this tool for over a decade and can turn your phone's into the best surveillance equipment ever. I know a lot of people joke about, oh, the FBI agent watching me, but you have to remember that you remember that meeting with um, Don Jr. and that Russian woman. And, uh, you know, she, she had her visa denied, but then Loretta Lynch on her own overrid that and let her in.
And then she went to this meeting where Don Jr., Paul Manafort, and all of them were there. And, you know, he walked out in 15 minutes because she was there for something else and turned out to be something else. But they had that whole meeting recorded because they used Pegasus to tap the phone of Manafort. Now, you could either take that at face value or not, but that's exactly what they did. And Pegasus was used to do this. Now, this company, NSO, had... um had uh, found a way to assist the FBI um, in how they should be using this. Um, so they have like this new packaged program, kind of like the way um, sock puppets were used in DARPA in 2009. They were using a specific software. Colonel Waldron had deployed ISI. Um, now they call it ClearForce. Right, They all change the way they mine your data. This one is simply to spy on you. And it, um, what, how they told Congress that this is done is, okay, so we're not using Pegasus anymore. We're not like turning on their cameras and microphones. We're only extrapolating anything that's really good and important data. Now, in order for them to be able to pull data from mobile devices, that means, you know, uh, the, that you need cooperation from the companies that, um, that do it. And basically your target's phone is like a, a mirror of what they're doing. They know when you go to the bathroom, when you eat, when you sleep, how you breathe. If you have sleep apnea, they know everything. Now, if you remember, AT&T was the one that provided call records and stuff uh, to shift so they can talk shit, right? And that's really important because all of this is coming up. These are weapons. These are cyber weapons. These cyber weapons have changed the battlefield. It is. It has been a digital battlefield that you had not been able to foresee. You're unable to foresee a battlefield like this because you expect that the Fourth Amendment is there to protect you. It's the way the invisible enemy attacks you. And that's what sucks, that you can't even see it because you don't know if it's there. All of that stuff is, uh, you know, on WikiLeaks anyway. But it's important that you understand how this evolves. Now let's watch part two exceptions. In our previous presentation, we looked at three exceptions to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. This presentation will explore three more, the stop and frisk rule, the automobile exception, and exigent circumstances. Let's start with stop and frisk. Police may stop someone without a warrant to pat down that person for weapons when there's a reasonable suspicion that he has committed a criminal act or is in the process of preparing to do so. Reasonable suspicion is not as high a standard as probable cause, but does require that the circumstances surrounding the event justify the suspicion. This exception was formed in Terry v. Ohio, a seminal case in American criminal procedure history. While on a routine beat, Cleveland police detective Martin McFadden noticed a group of men pacing in front of a jewelry store. Concerned that the men were casing a job, McFadden went up to the three, frisked them, and found a pistol in John W. Terry's pocket. McFadden arrested and charged Terry with carrying a concealed weapon. The United States Supreme Court affirmed the conviction, holding that an officer can stop and briefly detain an individual to determine whether criminal activity is underway. During the detention, the officer may pat down the detainee for weapons. 
a Terry stop, as it's come to be called, allows for only a pat-down that is reasonably calculated to discover concealed weapons. It does not allow the police officer to reach into the detainee's pockets or otherwise conduct a more invasive search. Of course, if the officer does feel what appears to be a weapon during the pat-down, the officer may then reach into the pocket and withdraw it. The stop-and-frisk rule has wide-ranging consequences in this era of heightened security fears across the United States. Many police departments across the country routinely use the device to maintain law and order. Because most stop-and-frisks turn up no weapons, and where they do, arguing that there was no reasonable suspicion becomes difficult since a weapon was in fact discovered, there is little constitutional check on the practice. The debate of whether stop-and-frisks reduce crime and whether the decreased liberty interest is justified by the benefit of the practice remains controversial. Another exception to the warrant requirement is the automobile exception. Police don't need to get a warrant to search a vehicle if they have probable cause to believe that there is evidence of a crime, contraband, or fruits of a crime inside the vehicle. The Supreme Court in Carroll v. The United States explained that it wasn't practical for police to obtain a search warrant prior to searching a vehicle for contraband or other evidence of a crime because a vehicle is mobile and so easily can be moved from the locality or jurisdiction in which the warrant must be sought. So long as police have probable cause to believe that the evidence of a crime is in the car or that the vehicle is connected to a criminal act, they can conduct a warrantless search. Probable cause is a fairly high standard to meet. Merely being pulled over for speeding or even behaving nervously or suspiciously after being pulled over does not give officers probable cause to search the car. Probable cause requires something more, such as, for example, a witness's tip that there was contraband in the car, or a statement of one of the occupants to that effect. In a 2005 case, Illinois v. Cabalas, the Supreme Court ruled that drug-sniffing dogs indicating the presence of marijuana in a car was sufficient to establish probable cause to allow a search of that car. The breadth of the automobile exception has been expanded to cover vehicles other than automobiles. In United States v. Villamonte Marquez, law enforcement boarded a private boat to inspect the owner's documents, but then began to search the entire boat when they smelled marijuana. They found marijuana during the search. The court permitted the warrantless search, finding that it was reasonable because the government has an interest in inspecting vehicles in the open seas without a warrant. They too are mobile and can be moved during the process of seeking a warrant. Finally, there is an exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement. If police have reason to believe that there's a bona fide emergency, they may enter the premises to investigate and remedy. For example, if police officers passing by a house hear someone scream from the inside, they may enter the house to determine if anybody's in danger. If, while in the house, they see illegal weapons or drugs in plain view, they may seize those drugs under the plain view exception. Exigent circumstances can also apply when there's a probability that evidence can be destroyed or moved before a neutral and detached magistrate can issue a warrant. Law enforcement can then search property or seize evidence without one. This, of course, is also the rationale behind the automobile exception. Ancillary to exigent circumstances is the hot pursuit rule. That is, if a fleeing criminal enters a private home, police in hot pursuit may also enter the home to effectuate a lawful arrest. While there, any contraband that they also see falls under the plain view exception to the warrant requirement. Law enforcement carries the burden of proving that exigent circumstances exist. 
In a 2011 Supreme Court case, Kentucky v. King, the court shed light on the scope of the exception's application. There, Lexington police knocked on the door of an apartment from which emanated a marijuana smell. After loudly identifying themselves, police heard movement inside and heard a toilet flush. Fearing the destruction of evidence, police entered the apartment and found Hollis King smoking marijuana and found other illegal drugs in the apartment. King was convicted of drug trafficking and related offenses. The Kentucky Supreme Court held that police violated King's Fourth Amendment rights and that the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement did not apply in this case. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, disagreed, holding that no warrant was required to go into King's apartment and conduct a search because the officers faced an emergency situation where it was reasonable to conclude that the apartment's residents were destroying evidence. Our nation's founding fathers crafted the Fourth Amendment to ensure that Americans would no longer be subject to general and arbitrary searches that were so prevalent during British rule. This bulwark against unreasonable interferences with our lives has evolved over time, and some argue that courts have allowed exceptions that have swallowed up the warrant requirement. New York University School of Law professor Oren Bar-Gill criticized the warrant exceptions, writing, quote, What was once a warrant requirement is now a rule so laden with exceptions that it best resembles a piece of Swiss cheese, a state of affairs increasingly accepted as the new normal. While many are not prepared to go that far, it is clear that exceptions to the warrant requirement make up a critical area in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So where are all the good lawyers to argue these things? Why haven't um, why hasn't anyone in office presented any legislation to protect our rights? Because that would mean that Walmart, Amazon, electric companies, car insurance, they wouldn't be allowed to collect your information. Obamacare allows them to collect your information. You know, Phoebe had a really bad tummy ache and went to the doctor this week. And the doctor said that I needed to sign a document so that they could release her records. I said, I'm not signing it. I'm not signing a general waiver so that you can share my child's information with whoever federal law allows. Because if you actually read um, the, the Obamacare law. The ACA is the most unconstitutional piece of legislation ever passed. You have zero rights. I expect every single one of you that are running to introduce legislation to protect people's information, to protect people's rights. I know that a lot of people think this is overwhelming, but everybody has a purpose. So many times every morning when I'm up and while I'm working, I think the devil's whispering in my ear. Hey, it's just you. You're just one person. Who do you think you are? And it's like, what? And I'm sure all of you have that. Everybody has a, a purpose here. Every single person. Did you know that um, uh, Moses 
Did you guys know that he was scared of speaking in front of people? Do you know that? And if you remember, David and Goliath, he brought a rock to a sword fight. And God's son, Jesus, picked 12 people nobody would have ever picked to convey his message. Whores, tax collectors, thieves, fishermen. All those people had a purpose. Every single one of them individually and collectively. I know that every morning when I get up, the minute my feet hit the ground, devil's like, damn, the bitch is up again. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is. I'm pretty sure he says that. I'm pretty sure. And I, and I make him right too, because he knows what's up. See, by your, you know, you yourself as a person should always force people to do right by you. I mean, I'm, I've been struggling with this for a while. A lot of, I guess, people like me who have been through the trenches have seen things that cannot be repeated, have undergone things that shouldn't be repeated. Sometimes there's a feeling of unworthiness, unworthiness um, to be loved, unworthiness to be embraced, unworthiness because, hey, you know, it's like, you know, running for secretary of state. Do I just come out and say, well, you know, if you want to fix your elections, you should pick me because I help Brigham. <laughs> you know, like I can't say that, even though it's true. We always have to um, ensure that people are doing right by us. It's, it's really hard sometimes because we, we want to love someone, right? You want to love someone. You want to not be by yourself. You want that man, that woman, that friend, right? And you let them do wrong to you. You let them use you. You let them manipulate you. You let them because you're scared of being alone. You're attracting the wrong people. And it's only because you're afraid. You're afraid, especially, you know, when, 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 when the person that you're letting go is a crutch, right? It's a crutch. And this is, you know, this resonates to, you know, our friends, our lovers, our family members, right? It's a crutch. No one is unlovable. No one should be made to be feel that they're being used, right? No matter what you have done in your past or how you were, no one deserves that. And it's the same thing when you're letting go of the image you had of what you thought your nation was. Why have you let it abuse you like this? Why have you let this government take your dignity, keep you down, tell you you're unworthy? You know, as I'm, as I'm, as I'm anticipating on, you know, making the announcement that I'm running, which means I won't be talking about my run 
on air because I don't want them to say, you're using your podcast, so you're, you know, you get paid by Twitch, so that's campaign stuff. <laughs> it's like, oops, then they'll take my rent. Um, uh, I know that a lot of people, I mean, I've thought about it and I thought this is nuts. They're going to crucify. Like they crucified me with so much bullshit. Like people were coming out saying things I said that I never said, right? They were like saying so much stuff. And I'm like, I want you guys to know that if I'm willing to put myself out there and let them shoot the same damn recycled arrows and shots and whatever you want to call it, then you could do it too. I mean, I know that whatever they say doesn't really affect me, right? It doesn't affect me because, you know, I know who I am, right? I mean, it does affect me in a sense because people won't talk to me or there's people that don't even know me and they'll just reiterate garbage and I'll be like, ew, you're too stupid to be my friend anyway. But um, if I can put myself out there, all of you can do the same thing. It's time that we take our nation back and dispel all of these notions that only those that are cookie cutter family that have a business or, you know, are prominent and stick their pinkies out with a teacup are eligible to run. It's not true. Don't let them tell you different. Matt, I'll support you 100%. Another person filed for Secretary of State. You guys, don't let anyone tell you that someone else is better than you. I was looking at the candidates that I'm going to be running up against. So Frank LaRose, they obviously have some blackmail on him. He totally flipped, changed the legislation. He's a loser. He's gone. Now, Republicans don't want three people on the ticket because that'll dilute it. And they're worried that LaRose is going to go on. But the thing is, dude, the other guy that's running, his name is John Adams. Corrupt as shit. United Way. Guys, I need a digging group on United Way, right? (laughs) United Way um, is one of the biggest money laundering fronts of of an organization ever seen for CRT, for everything. And not only that, he worked with Secretary of State Blackwell, (laughs) the first ever properly recorded election fraud. He worked with that secretary of state. So, <laughs> so this is going to be an easy walk in the park, right? United way money laundering, AFL CIO affiliate. You think that guy's a fucking Republican? Stop it. They have no chance in hell of beating me. As long as we can be heard. I'll make myself hurt. I'm getting on the ballot. So, For those of you, like I said, if I'm running and I've got smear job after smear job, drunks, addicts, trolls, you can fucking do it. You don't even have half the shit out there. Most of my shit's fake too, but they just recycle it as if it's new. Yeah. Because the attorney general would let me off if I had a criminal conviction. I'd have clearances and have no criminal record if I had a criminal record, right? This is how fucking dumb people are. So just going to (laughs) say... I'm just saying. So 
Um, I'm actually getting on the ballot GOP and, um, I'm excited and I wanted to tell you guys today cause next week I will be doing some shows, right? Um, I will be traveling to various places and, um, you know, while many people are like, well, what if this endorsement, what if that the only endorsement I need is that of the people. And the endorsement of the people comes if they know that you're going to fight for them. So for all of you out there that um, are thinking about it, do it. You have absolutely nothing to lose. Do it. You will win so hard. Do it. People are tired of these prepos- the, 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 the posturing bullshit, right, politicians. They're tired of the people posing with their happy kids that have like, you know, oh, look at me. And, oh, I'm such a Republican. I work with an AFL-CIO affiliate that funded the fucking J6 and all the Black Lives Matter shit and helped out with the post office. Trust me, I'm a good Republican. <laughs> like, these are the things that I have to run. I mean, it's like It's like running against someone with no legs. Could you imagine a debate? You're not a Republican. You're a Democrat and freaking under a cloak. But I don't have to do it. I could just put it on a web page, right? I could just, you know, what is it called? Opposition research. Because their opposition research is going to be like first page, just like most trolls do, and not read it. And, you know, newspapers have to be very careful. They can write what they say, but they also have to write that I'm currently suing them. That's the law. You can't just take one side of it. (laughs) Right. So, and the guy's dead now. God rest his soul. It's not going to be restful. May he have mercy on his soul. I I say that honestly, even though he was an evil man. Such an evil man. Atrocious things he's done. I hope that there's some mercy. Because when you take your life, that's like the worst one. Unless they took him out so he could shut up because he might sing like a bird. You don't know. I mean, he was a little bit limp-wristed, so he might have talked. You know, he wanted to cover himself. So for all of you out there considering a run, run. For all of you out there thinking you're not good enough, you're totally good enough. Don't let anyone tell you that you're not good enough. Don't be, don't let anyone abuse your goodness, right? It's, 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 it's so hard sometimes for a lot of us. I find myself in that predicament too, where you, you know, you, you had like a friend or you met a guy or a girl and they were your rock during the hardest time of your life. And you're just like, I'm indebted to you. I am in love with you. Or you marry them, right? Whatever. But then they treat you like a means to a way. And you see it with full clarity in the most stupidest way. It'll be like, you know, he takes you out for pizza and, you know, brings himself a paper napkin and not you, right? Or, you know, your friend, you know, is doing something and you're just like, Hey, this, yeah, I can't do that right now because you know, I gotta, I gotta look after myself. Just, just ignore it. It'll be fine. And you're just like, no dude, like I'm, I'm actually worried. I'm, this might happen. Yeah. No, 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 stop, stop. I don't need this. This is just drama. Just forget it. But if it was the other way around, 
you know, that friend would be there for you. See, these are the things, the little things you see and you have to start learning. I promised myself that I won't allow myself to allow any um, sadness that I may have or any indebtedness where if I see really good in someone's soul, I will not try that hard to rip it out no matter how evil they are. I'm done doing that. It, it wastes my time, right? It causes me mental anguish because, you know, that human side of me just wants to embrace them and, and bring them up. We have to stop doing that. We have to focus on what our purpose is. And our purpose is to get things done. So the one thing that we'll do next week for sure is bombard the Attorney General of New York and ask for the appropriate documentation that justifies the uh, new investigation into the Trump family. And with all that information that we will be receiving by requesting through open records acts, we'll then file a nice fat ass lawsuit suing her for abuse of office and vexation litigation using federal tax dollars. In fact, we can start filing GAO complaints for fraud, waste, and abuse. Guys, we really need to save New York in order to save the nation. That's the Empire State. Now, um, like I said, I'll be running. So, um, I mean, I think I can run an ad maybe while I'm doing my podcast. I'm not sure, but I can't talk about it. And, you know, my campaign will pretty much be online mostly, uh, cause you know, people are still worried about COVID and, um, I mean, mine is pretty easy guys. Secretary of state is election fraud and businesses. You know what your, your state needs and you know how we fix it. So I'm going to run. I'm going to sell every single election machine we have. I'm going to get rid of it, all of it. And you know what? I'm going to use the money from the machines and the allocation of money that I get to pay actual people to count the fucking paper ballots. And I will run on that shit like nobody's business. I'll say we can use technology on everything else. But right now, how did they, how were they able to count ballots before midnight 10, 20 years ago? And now they can't count when it's common core. We need to get rid of the machines and I'm going to campaign on that. I'm getting rid of every single electronic machine when it comes to most fundamental right that we have, which is our voice. We make no corners cut. We don't cut corners and we make sure there's transparency. Speaking of transparency, you guys know how I sued that federal judge in Georgia and demanded the document that she's sitting on sealed that can prove my affidavit. Well, here's the funny part. I've been trying to get a hold of the actual person that wrote the report, and they're a ghost. Three attempts, two different states. And lo and behold, today, let me show you what came up. <laughs> you won't believe it. Lo and behold, today, and you know why I knew it was going to happen? Because here's what happened. You guys know that Congressman Cohen was the reason that my case is in federal court now. Because as you know, even Dominion has, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, all of them are in state court, right? So for some reason, you know, because he's a congressman, he has that right and he pulled me into federal court. Well, 
listen to what happened. So all the documents from the case in the state court is supposed to be transferred over to the federal court, every single one of them. Now, what my lawyers realized is the subpoena that we sent to the federal judge in Georgia um, and the fact that they didn't object and the motion to show cause were never transferred into the federal case. It means that the state court decided to not transfer those documents over to the federal court. So now my lawyer has to file and say, hey, you know, the, I emailed the court. I told them that they didn't send it and they haven't sent just that. And today, as we were discussing this and I'm freaking out, I was like, damn it, I missed it. You know, they waited 30 days from the transfer of the case. You know, now this comes on the news. So weird. Well, over the 2020 election is far from over for one professor at the University of Michigan. He's now embroiled in a lawsuit involving voting machines in Georgia. Tonight, we are hearing from that professor's attorney who's back in the spotlight over his work on the election. It involves voting machines and disputed claims still circulating down south. Let's bring in Grant Herms, who joins us. And Grant, this is just the latest in a long line of these kinds of claims. It really is. And this professor, you know, isn't a named defendant in this lawsuit, although the secretary of state down in Georgia is certainly treating him as one lobbying claims about secret findings and a secret report and those same conspiracies that have refused to go away for more than a year now. A University of Michigan professor at the center of a Georgia election lawsuit stemming from a landmark report about the security of voting machines. This week, the Georgia Secretary of State calling on Michigan cybersecurity professor Dr. J. Alex Halderman to release an alleged secret report showing voting machines from the company Dominion Voting had serious flaws. The secretary claims proves the 2020 election results should be questioned. That report has already been released publicly, but was entered as sealed in the case this week. It says while there are red flags about certain areas of security, there is no reason to question whether the election was stolen or was filled with fraud. Local 4 did try to reach Halderman, but the attorney for the defendants, David Cross, who has been retained by Halderman, said in a series of emails, quote, given the personal assault he's under with false claims about his work and integrity by a senior state official, we are not comfortable with that. He added that, quote, the implication that Dr. Halderman or the judge has prevented him and his office from learning the substance of the report is simply untrue. Later adding, the secretary's mischaracterizations of Dr. Halderman's report are obviously baseless, given he claims nobody in his office has read the report. Before that's concluded, I wanted to say she sealed it, but Georgia's Secretary of State has read it. I've seen it too. Um, and then she sealed it and said no one's allowed to have it. Now, um, good thing is now I know David Cross is Dr. Halderman's attorney, so now I can actually serve him a subpoena uh, because it's going into my court case. See, the, the, the issue that I have here is, is that this guy is actually a voting security expert. He claimed the same thing um, I had claimed in 2019, in 2019, and in 2018, and in 2017. Obviously not the inner workings, but what he's talking about is how they're doing it. So as I said, the epicenter of this and the key and the beginning of all of this is Georgia because they got caught in 2016. The system broke down for them in 2016. And they got caught. 
in the machines. And so uh, I, I, I want to make it clear that Dr. Halderman has not refused to, pr- to, to produce it. And the judge is the one sealing it. And both the governor and the secretary of state of Georgia have seen it. So now the problem that I, I face is that the judge will allow it with some redactions. Um, and I don't want redactions. I want that thing unredacted. Because what he put there is 100% correct. He goes around the world. He is, you know, he's a linguist. He's in the Department of Linguistics, right? He's a computer engineer, linguistics, go figure, right? Um, but his conclusion is the same as mine that I stated in my affidavit and have been saying for a very long time, which is the problem that we have is that we can't prove the machines are flipping the vote, but we can't prove they're not because some gatekeeper has the frog cipher. And when you don't have the cipher key for the mixing, that's a problem. And then you have to ask yourself, that mixing thing was my idea of globalizing the software, meaning that we remember this, you know, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to leave it for court. But let's listen to the rest of this report. The judge in this case has been asked to unseal this report, but she says that she is worried that these findings, Jason, could be used by what she's calling bad actors. Back to you. Yeah. And what does it mean for Michigan, all of this? Well, it means for Michigan that these lies that we see coming out of these conspiracy theories are the same ones that were the basis for those court cases from the former president's lawyers. They were the basis for those people to come forward and say that they represent Michiganders here as false electors. And they were the basis for that draft executive order that would have meant seizing Michigan voting machines. It also means that lies and conspiracy theories like the ones being spread down in Georgia look like they could get some new life here in Michigan as we look ahead to the midterm elections this year. Yeah, and we know we're going to hear more about Michigan's false electors, that's for sure. Grant. This is going to be a party. See, I already subpoenaed the judge myself. No talk about that, right? They keep mine undercover because none of the people that have submitted their affidavits claiming all these things have sued for defamation because none of them were defamed except for me. It's quite interesting. None of them were defamed except for me. So it's so weird. It's so bizarre, isn't it? Huh? I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's wrong, but I'm the only one attacked. Nobody else. Where are all other people that did their long affidavits like that Merritt guy? Why isn't he suing for defamation? Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Mine is cited and sourced. And if anybody actually reads um, Sidney Powell's um, filing against against Dominion, I want you guys to take a highlighter, right? And highlight all the sentences that are identical to my affidavit. It's more than 51% of her filing is mine. So when people talk that, I have a problem with a very big problem with. So on that note, you guys, um, we will, I will, um, on Sunday have movie night, um, from another city. So I will do movie night Monday. I will do. Oh, I don't know if I can. Yeah, I can. I can. I'll do a show on Monday if I can in time because 
you know, Monday I file my paperwork. So, um, I may not be able to Tuesday. I'm traveling. Um, I will let you guys know, uh, if anything uh, changes, I will try to do my shows. I know that one day there will be a Tori Says party, so um, I won't be able to. But you know what I could do? I can live stream on Twitch from the party on my phone. So I'll make sure to bring a battery backup. How's that? Um, and then I'll be back on regular schedule after that. So... Um, <laughs> Pray for all the truckers that are standing in Canada. They're the backbone of our logistics. Pray for all those that do wrong. And remember, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Every single one of you should run. Every single one of you qualify. You're a citizen of this nation. You are a member of your community. And you should be standing up. And look at me. I'm going to go there with the big, you know, the target dog has nothing on the target on my butt or face or back or feet or chest. And I'm doing it. So hopefully that gives you the inspiration to do the same. God bless everyone. Good night. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up.